Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Apologies for the gaps between podcasts the last two months. I've been making a couple of documentaries for the BBC, one of which, Journey to Ashkenaz, follows in a minute. Until I find serious patronage for the podcast, these gaps will occasionally occur. Thanks for being patient, and any ideas for funding, gratefully received. You can contact me at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Journey to Ashkenaz was made for the BBC World Service. It's about my personal history and about modern Jewish life in what was the historical heartland of Ashkenazic Jewry. I won't be back at the end of the podcast. The documentary doesn't lend itself to a sign-off, as you will hear, if you listen all the way through. And I hope you do, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Prayer as Lament Once upon a not-too-distant time, the sound of Ashkenazic Jewish prayer was heard all over the lands where my father's family comes from. Then the 20th century happened, and this sound was almost entirely extinguished. I'm Michael Goldfarb, on a journey to Ashkenaz for Heart and Soul on the BBC World Service. Here are a few things you need to know to join me on this journey. Like most of the world's Jews, I'm Ashkenazic. Ashkenaz is a medieval Hebrew word for Germany, but by the beginning of the 20th century, the Ashkenazic heartland was in what is today Ukraine, although when my family lived there, the territory was divided between the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires, and my father's family was divided between these two empires. But that wasn't the only division. The Russian side was completely secular, the Austrian side religious, but the Holocaust cuts all connections to my past. My family's history vanished along with the land of Ashkenaz, and I'm going back to this place to find any information I can about them, and also what remains of the Jewish world that shaped them and continues to shape me, to argue inside me Jewish belief and ritual versus the secular and rational. The first thing I found on my journey was there's more Jewish life in the land of Ashkenaz than you or I might think. This year, on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, in Uman, the followers of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov gathered at his tomb, as they have for more than 200 years. As many as 40,000 traveled to this provincial town from Israel, the U.S., and Western Europe. Most wear the long frock coats and side curls that mark them as Hasids, or pious Jews. They wander up and down the narrow hillside on Uman's outskirts, where Rabbi Nachman's tomb is, listening to harangues from those leading their own pious groups. The Hasidic movement began in the land of Ashkenaz in the 18th century. Inside the building which surrounds Reb Nachman's grave, the crowd, all men, are overwhelmed with fervor. (laughs) 
the only place I've ever encountered a similar surrendering to faith was at the shrine of Imam Riza in Iran's holy city of Mashhad. The fervor was so intense, it challenged my own identity as a Jew. Most of the Jewish pilgrims were from Israel and spoke only Hebrew and Yiddish, but walking away from the tumult, I met Eli Farkas from Brussels by way of Hungary, who stopped long enough to explain the essence of being a Breslover. Meditation, speaking to God every day. That's the main thing of being a Breslover. Farkas yeah. was making his fifth pilgrimage to Uman. I wondered what he felt about making regular trips to the bloodlands of Ashkenaz. Well, I only come here because the Rebbe said to come here. I don't like to come here because I see the hatred in their eyes. The religious fervor in Uman was all too much for me. I prefer to find a more assimilated way to be Jewish. And I'm standing on a corner in the Moldavanka in Odessa. The Moldavanka was the old Jewish quarter where poor Jews lived. Well, there are still poor people here. Jews, not so much. Odessa is, for me, just the name. It's a myth. My great-grandfather left here 130 years ago, according to family lore. No letters, no photos, nothing remains of his time here. So I have only my father and my grandfather's word for it. But Odessa was always the place that I was told I come from. Although I come from other places as well which is fairly typical in the land of Ashkenaz. Odessa, in my family's story and in Jewish history, represents the secular. Professor Anna Mizyuk, a Jewish Odessan, took me for a walk and private seminar about the ways Odessa's secularism shaped modern Jewish history. We wandered down a side street and paused in the entryway to a small building. She pointed to a sign above us, referring to the work of a committee that met here. Israel State, the modern Israel State, was born here. In this building? In this building. A decade before the first Zionist Congress was held in Switzerland in 1897, Odessa Jews had begun to fundraise and organize committees to begin the return to Palestine. And this committee uh, have prepared maybe uh, tens of thousands people who went to uh, Palestine and began to build a settlement there. Why did this proto-Zionism grow here and not in other parts of the world of Ashkenaz? Anna Mezyuk says, look to the city's foundation by Catherine the Great in the late 18th century. Russia needed a modern port on the Black Sea to export its products. People of many nationalities were allowed to move here without restrictions, including Jews. So Jews came here not as special group of uh, refugees, uh, persecuted people. They were not um, resettled by force, yes, from one place to another. No, they were free immigrants. And... Uh, and so it was the first Jewish community of modern style in the territory of Russian Empire. Anna Mizyuk took me to the Museum of the History of Odessa Jews to continue the story. People who came here, they were not so orthodox also. If you're orthodox, you have no need to go to another place. Yes. You're happy yes. where you are. Yes. And these people were already 
away from orthodoxy. But, but these people, they were ready to change their place, to change their way of life and so on. At some point in the 19th century, my father's father's family moved to Odessa, left religion behind, and embraced the modern. In 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated. Rumors were spread by the government that it had been a Jewish plot. Pogroms, violence against Jews, engulfed the Russian world of Ashkenaz. Odessa was not spared. And shortly after that, my great-grandfather left and eventually ended up in America. And all he leaves behind is a mystery. His family name, when he left Odessa, was Katz. When he arrived in America, it had become Goldfarb. Anna Mizyuk could offer no suggestions about how to find out more. In Odessa, Katz was a common name among Jews. There were lots of them. Mizyuk, however, can trace her family line continuously. In the 20s, this city was 44% Jewish. And it was still a third Jewish at the start of the Second World War. Yes, uh, maybe only 25% survived after the period of Nazist occupation. Mm. Your grandfather was shot. My grandfather and great-grandfather, they died in Girta. And uh, my grandfather from other side too. My parents, my mother was 16, my father was 17, yes. And they met each other in Girta. <laughs> And yet, despite this history, Odessa still hasn't lost its Jewish character. I think today Odessa is the best place in the world to, to be a Jew, to live like a Jew. Abraham Wolf, chief rabbi of South Ukraine. I think in Odessa it's about 40,000, 45,000 Jewish people. The rabbi, a member of the Chabad Orthodox group, was born in Israel, but sent by the leadership to Odessa in the early 1990s. Over the decades, he has watched a phenomenon unfold. There are many, many people who are only just discovering they are Jewish. After World War II, anti-Semitism became the policy of the Soviet Union. Survivors of the Holocaust were still stigmatized, and many tried to bury the fact that they were Jews. But since Ukraine became independent, the older generation is coming out of hiding to tell the younger generation who they really are. Because it's today very modern to be a Jew. You say very modern to be a Jew. Modern, you know, modern. Not mod modern, uh, you know, it's very... Stylish. It's very popular. We say fashionable. It's very fashionable today to be a Jew. The discovery of Jewish roots may be fashionable, but it can also be traumatic. The Holocaust may have destroyed my connection to the facts of my family's life in Ashkenaz, but I have always known I was a Jew. This wasn't the case for Nadia Gochman, born in western Ukraine, who works for Tikva, a Jewish children's charity in Odessa. My story was I didn't know about my Jewish roots. So because in western Ukraine, it was not so nice situation for Jewish people. And my grandmother, she hides that she is Jewish. And she never uh, show us her passport, where it was written that she is Jewish. But it wasn't so easy for Nadia, who was 14 when her mother told her, you know, actually, we're Jewish. In Western Ukraine, a lot of anti-Semitism. My mother and grandmother still live in Kolomoya, 
and uh, sometimes they have some anti-Semitism problems. Yeah, problems. I wonder what it's like to discover when you're 14. You know, actually, I am a Jew, and I live in a place where most of the Jews were killed. What went through your mind? After I started doing interest in what is Jewish life, I knew that in my city, in Kolomea, before Second World War, was a lot, a lot of Jews. And um, after Second World, World War, was no one. <laughs> so I learned a little bit about Holocaust, and it's... I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, every time. The part of Ukraine where Nadia comes from is also where my grandmother comes from. It's called Galicia and was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the next part of our journey to Ashkenaz on the BBC World Service is taking us there. The capital city of Galicia was Lemberg, and my grandmother always said she loved Lemberg. But I'm sure the Lemberg she visited as a child wasn't like this. band is smoking hot at the Pravda Beer Theatre on Renok Square in the medieval heart of Lviv, the Ukrainian name of Lemberg. It's a comparatively quiet Tuesday night. On the weekends, there are performers every 10 meters around the square competing for ears and small coins. At the beginning of the 20th century, Lemberg was the provincial capital of Galicia, the easternmost province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The city, with its magnificent late imperial architecture and Belle Epoque Opera House, survived all the terrors of the 20th century, Nazism, Stalinism, intact. The region's Jews did not, so they require a different kind of music. The first movement of Mahler's Sixth Symphony, the Tragic Symphony, is being played by the Ukrainian Festival Orchestra on the site of the Yanovska Death Camp on the outskirts of Lviv. On this day, the 75th anniversary of the liquidation of Yanovska Camp and the Lviv Ghetto in the center of the city is being commemorated. A few hundred people, including a single survivor, and the grandchildren of one or two others are in attendance. That's not surprising. There weren't many who lived through the orgy of death, the Holocaust by bullets, as opposed to gas, that took place here. By the summer of 1943, virtually all of the region's 620,000 Jews were dead. Jewish life and culture was not entirely destroyed. The second half of the 75th anniversary commemorations were held in Lviv's medieval heart at the site of the Golden Rose Synagogue, dynamited by the Nazis. 
a concert of traditional Yiddish songs, and an astonishing new piece that turned the shofar, a ram's horn, blown as part of the holiest Jewish services, into a jazz instrument of pain and power. Natalia Vakshinska and her husband Yevgeny make songs from Bible verses. Yevgeny plays the guitar and arranges the music. Natalia's voice is the primary instrument, but the couple wanted to add something else. The violin and clarinet, the traditional lead instruments of Jewish klezmer music, didn't quite work. They needed something different. Natalia Vakshinska remembers... Some person gave me shofar, uh, and <laughs> yes, just a gifted uh, shofar. This is amazing. Yes. You know, I mean, there aren't that many shofars anyway. Yes. You know, in a synagogue, my own synagogues growing up, there was one guy. There'd always be one guy who had learned how to blow at, so that, you know, at the holy days, you would hear the shofar. And you put the shofar away, you know. But this is like something else. So somebody gave you one? Yes, really, we know about it because people came to us and spoke, you shouldn't use this instrument in such a way. Now only two times per year. The shofar is only heard on the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But the way these musicians use the ram's horn transforms it from an instrument for ritual into an instrument of renewal. Natalia speaks a non-verbal language through the shofar, but sings real words from the Psalms in her lyrics. At the Golden Rose, it was a single verse from Psalm 144, I will sing a new song unto thee. In Hebrew, new song is Sher Hadash. This was not my first trip to Lviv. Six years ago, I traveled here to report on ethno-nationalism and the bizarre phenomenon of anti-Semitism where there are no longer Jews. Lviv today seems to be acknowledging its past and wants to re-engage with it, as evidenced by the 75th anniversary commemoration at Yanovska camp, the first of its kind in the city. But there have been other changes as well. The Ukrainian Catholic University has recently started a course in Judaica studies, led by a professor of history, Yaroslav Ritsak. How could you study history here if you don't mention Jews, which is a very important part of the history and past of this uh, territory? So what you're saying is you, you can't write the history of this part of Ukraine, Galicia, Halachina, whatever, however you call it, without including the Jews? I would say any part, any part, because Ukraine is basically traditional Jewish territory since the, since, since the very old, old times, but specifically here. And what languages do the students have to know then? I mean, presumably they have to learn some Yiddish or not? Uh, Yiddish and Hebrew is a must, but then also local Polish, Polish, Ukrainian, and, and Yiddish, also very importantly, German. Polish, Ukrainian, Yiddish, Hebrew, German, it existed in all these languages. But with so few Jews left, what materials are there to work with? The good thing, well, the best thing that happened here 
in terms of historical studies, our archives here are preserved, uh, they're perfectly preserved. Uh, lucky enough, uh, the city has not been has not been suffered or destroyed either by the first or second world war. So there's a plethora of documents actually. Those documents, births, deaths, marriages throughout the Austro-Hungarian province of Galicia are incredibly well organized, and some of them have been put online. Historian Olena Andronati offered to help me look for evidence of my grandmother's family. I had two clues to give her, her maiden name, Schlitten, and the name of the town she came from, as entered in the immigrant arrival registry at Ellis Island in New York City. Sasov, Sasiv in Ukrainian, a tiny town around 80 kilometers away from Lviv. So we're, we're walking through a field of, I can't even tell what this is, but underneath our feet, this is the cemetery. In fact, they were broad beans covering the entire cemetery. Vast open fields stretched in all directions, and at the horizon were forested hilltops, except in the southwest, where two enormous radio antenna dishes sat incongruously, left over from the Soviet Union's anti-ballistic missile warning system. This is a pretty sizable place, and all of the tombstones have been taken away. But with, for me, I don't know even if I have, you know, relations buried mm -hmm. here, because all I know about the past is that this is where they came from, and my great-grandfather worked here as a, on an estate. He, he was the administrator of somebody's estate. But maybe it was his first job. Maybe he came from somewhere else. Maybe his family and his wife's family are buried somewhere else. There's no way of knowing. We, do, we don't know, really, because we have not any books about this uh, cemetery, for example. And really, we have no idea who exactly was buried here. I had hoped that there would be some tombstones, and I would... I fantasized that I would have a moment where, in Hebrew, I would see my family's name, uh -huh. Schlitten, in Hebrew. And I would say, oh my God, this is my great-great-grandfather. But it's not going to happen. Yes, yes, it's a pity, but... We went to the Sassiv Town Hall and were directed to the local school, where a history teacher gave us a lecture on what life was like there when my grandmother was a little girl. Sassiv and the adjacent hamlets were shtetls, or village communities. The majority of the population in the area was Jewish. It was primarily an agricultural region, but Sassiv was big enough for there to be a couple of small factories making products for Jewish worship, and more importantly for me, a local registry office. Some of the records of my family had survived and were stored in the Habsburg archives in Lviv. Olena Andronati had found a few references to the births of my great aunts and the birth and death of a son in 1909, the year before the family arrived in New York. It also showed that, in fact, they lived in Pobich, a village a few kilometers north of Sassiv. We drove in that direction, stopped by the side of the road, where the concrete foundations of an old factory were visible in the long summer grass. And Olena told me a sad story. During Second World War, here was ghetto. 
we're standing on a road. To me, it's going nowhere. It's just in the middle of nowhere. And it's all trees and wildflowers, and there's some corn planted over there. But when the Germans came through in 1941, they built a ghetto here yeah. on the ruins of this factory. And across the road where you're just pointing is where the men were. Yes, and here was men ghetto because women they will send to Belgians and uh, Belgians was Belgians to uh, it's a death, death camp. camp. The women of the area were all killed in Belgians. The men were forced to work in the factory whose remains we were looking at until one day they were marched into the woods behind where we were standing, and they were all shot. Through a line of trees, perhaps half a kilometer away, I could see some roofs. This was Popich, where my grandmother had lived until she was ten years old. I asked Olena what it was like to deal with this history every single day. Fifteen years ago, I thought that all Jewish world was killed and was disappeared during Nazi period. But when I started to discover this Jewish world here, I realized that this world was disappeared not only during Second World War, but during Soviet period. And most of all, the first was killed Jewish uh, people. And after that, Soviet government killed all remembrance about Jewish people. Every single day, when I try to find something, I surprised, and I don't understand how it was possible. My journey to Ashkenaz had come to an end, standing by the river Bug, in the fields where my grandmother must have played. In 1910, my great grandfather brought his wife and four daughters into the United States of America. And that's where history ends for me in this place. I know only the name, only because I was able to research it. I know nothing about their lives, and there is no remnant. There is no single place where I could find out more about how they might have lived, except this one anecdote. My grandmother knew some folklore about cows, and in the pasture just under that bridge, there are cows. And I wonder if she looked into that pasture, if she ran through that pasture. And I try to match up this extraordinarily rural agricultural region with the bricked-in, hemmed-in Lower East Side, where she ended up living in New York in 1910. When you stand on the remains of the concentration camp, you say a little prayer of thanks. There should be a prayer of thanks in the Jewish religion now for all of our great-grandfathers who were clever enough to leave this bloody land. Because I think if he hadn't left, then he would have been dead here. If there's a meaning to religion for me, then it has to be in finding some kind of new ritual to acknowledge the loss, the utter loss of the world of the Ashkenaz. Shall the blood shame?